The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You know, being our anniversary, as I think back over the last 21 years, so many memories um, of our, the existence of our church and the last 16 and a half that Rebecca and I have been uh, in the role that we've been in here at the church. And so just excited to think back on all those memories. One of them in particular jumped out at me um, this morning because it was actually nine years ago this weekend we had gathered together. And I, I've probably shared this story. Many, some of you have heard it, but it's one of those family stories. So I'm going to, family stories you tell over and over. I want to tell you this story, remind you of this story. Um, it happened nine years ago. Maybe some of you are here for this. We had gathered together and we were just kicking off a new series on the Beatitudes. It was kicking off the Sermon on the Mount study. It was a, it's a, some of the most powerful words, not only Jesus ever spoke that, but most powerful words ever spoken. And the Beatitudes open up with this powerful statement, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so I remember as we were getting ready for that series a couple weeks earlier, I was really digging into the Beatitudes and really studying them. And I, I felt this nudge from the Lord. Hey, you shouldn't go into words so powerful as a church without setting aside time for focused prayer. And I thought to myself, oh yeah, that's a, you know, thank you, Lord. That's a, that's a good idea. Let me think about that. What should that look like? How would we do that? And um, as I was thinking about it, I forgot. Well, that Sunday came and I uh, preached through the first service about being poor in spirit, which means that we're spiritually, we have nothing to offer God spiritually. We're spiritually bankrupt. We're in desperate need of a holy God to save us. And so we were, I was preaching that the first service. And then the second service is when things started to get a little crazy. I remember the first thing that I noticed was in the service, so many cell phones went off. I mean, occasionally that happens, a cell phone here, a cell phone there, or whatever, but so many went off at the beginning of that sermon that one of my buddies who was in the, in the, um, in the congregation that morning was like, I thought there was a national emergency and everyone was calling their loved ones. It was crazy. And so we kind of all pushed through that together, and as we're going through, then a storm rolled in. And, you know, we've, we've had storms roll in during on a Sunday morning. You can kind of hear the rain on the roof and maybe some rumbling of the thunder. But this was a storm like we'd never experienced on a Sunday morning before. I mean, the thunder would shake the room. And not just shake the room randomly. It was like it would punctuate the message. And so I said something like, and we have nothing to offer God. And it would be like... And like, it was like afterwards, like we'd all like pause, okay, and get silent for a second. This is awkward, you know? And then I preached a little longer and then it would happen again to the point where I, I actually said, I'm like, hey, I don't really want to preach this sermon anymore. Like I'm scared about to get zapped, okay? And so it just kept, I mean, building and like the thunder got bigger and bigger and then it knocked the lights out. All the power went out and we're all sitting there in darkness and we're trying to preach through that. And then we kind of came back on and we're like, ha ah, this is... This is kind of crazy. And then right towards the end, there was a, a, an individual that had come to the church that was obviously going through a lot and they had a large outburst in the back and we had some ushers come and, and help them out of the auditorium and try and meet their needs. And at that point, we're all just kind of, we're kind of just exhausted. Like what's about to happen?
happened next, okay? And we kind of circled. I said, hey, I don't know what God's doing this Sunday, but obviously there's a message he wants us to hear and the enemy doesn't want us to hear, so let's just push through and we finished it up. And I remember I was driving home and like, I don't think I blinked all the way home. Like, I was all alone in the car. I'm like, Lord, that was crazy. And I felt this little voice say, how about you pray now? I'm like, we'll get on it right away. Absolutely, we're gonna pray. And so at that point, what we did was, Uh, about a hundred of us as leaders set aside that time that fall for 40 days to pray and fast for um, in in different ways, but we just felt nudged by the Lord and we honestly didn't even totally know why he was calling us to pray and fast. But nine years ago, it was this weekend that that happened and we began praying for that. And at the very end of that time of praying and fasting, it was later in the fall, It was like the Lord had set aside that time because he wanted to deposit something into our church. It was something about the ethos of who he wanted us to be. It was something about that he was clarifying about our mission, about who we were supposed to be. Like we knew that we didn't want the game. Like we didn't want to play a game. We wanted to follow Jesus with all that we had. And it was like at the end of that time of fasting and praying, it was like he just clarified and he gave us words for what we are supposed to be after as a church, particularly us as City Rev. And so we kicked off a series in January to just push into that. And what we did is we looked at all of the different parts where Jesus said, look, if you want to be my disciple, this is what it looks like. It's very clear. And what we did is we're teaching through that. I mean, many of us had heard that word disciples so much that we went back to the ancient original Greek word for disciple, which is the word mathetes, which I want that to all be familiar. If City Rev is your church home, I want you to be familiar with that Greek word. So let's say that together. One, two, three, mathetes. And we went back to that original Greek word mathetes. And every time where he was just, he kind of stop all of his mathetes, all the disciples. And say, if you want to be my, my mathetes, my follower, my disciple, this is what that looks like. And every time what he would describe is an all or nothing situation. It's not a game. It's not sprinkled into our lives. To follow Jesus is all or nothing. And so here's what that means. If that is that, what he's deposited in City Rev, if you are a part of City Rev, if you belong to this church, and every Christian doesn't just attend a local church, according to the Bible, they're a part of it. They belong to a church. You're a piece of it. So if that's the word he's spoken into City Rev, and you belong to City Rev, then please hear me. This is so important then what that means is that's not just a word he's spoken into the church that you go to. That's not just a word over the church as if the church is one of the nonprofits that maybe you volunteer at or you give money to or you're, you're a fan of. The church is not a nonprofit that you're supporting. The church is something that you are a piece of. You and I, all of us together, are the church. So if that is a word to be a mathetes of Jesus with its original intensity, if that's a word on our church, then that's a word over your life, my life, 
our, our children, our spouses, that is something that he is calling us each to see as part of our life as we're following after Jesus. If we're going to be a mathetes, if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, and that's so central, then we're going to push into that in this series. The ancient idea of a mathetes is they would become like the one they were following. They would become like their teacher or their rabbi. They're, they were making them like themselves. And so if we're going to be a mathetes, we need to know about the one that we're following. If our identity is fundamentally about who we're following, let's push into who that person is. I want to open up uh, in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. Would you go with me to Genesis chapter 49? As we're in this series called The Call of the Lion, there is a lion theme that runs all the way around and in, in, in around in the Bible. And we're going to trace that in this series. Go to Genesis chapter 49. We're going to start in verse 1. Here's what it says. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Now let me just briefly, I really want to get into the meat of this, so let me just very briefly set the context. Jacob, as in um, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, so the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is calling all of his 12 sons together. God re has renamed Jacob Israel because his 12 sons will become the nation of Israel. Those 12 sons will become the 12 tribes. He's calling, but that's in the future. Right now, this is Jacob at the very end of his life. We're about to close the book of Genesis in these last couple chapters. And he calls all of his sons together for a family meeting. He is going to speak, he says, about what is to come. He is going to speak his patriarchal blessing over all the sons. Now, this is not like a, a family meeting like we would have at the end of a patriarch's life. And this time period in this culture, he's going to speak a blessing. And the understanding is that this blessing is going to have almost a prophetic sense to it. This is what I see in you. And that's going to turn out to be like, this is what's going to emerge with your life. But since this is God's people, these words are very prophetic. This is prophetic literature. So he's pulled all of his sons together and he's going to start with the oldest and work his way through the sons. We're just going to hit the first couple, but he's going to work his way through the sons and he's going to speak a blessing over them. Let's pick it up in verse three. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let, not, let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, 
and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. First reaction, this is an awkward family meeting. Starts with the oldest, Reuben, and he's going well. You are my firstborn, my power. And then he brings up some ancient history. And um, you thought your family was a little messed up. God did not choose this family because they were godly. Reuben had slept with one of his father's, Jacob's, concubines. Now, there's all kind of things wrong with that. First of all, wait, Jacob had concubines? Yes, he had several wives, which the Bible never uh, allows. It just describes and always will show you how that was, that's so devastating to the family. Reuben slept with one of them, and uh, Jacob is bringing that out, saying, this is what happened. This is who you are. Then he gets to Levi and Simeon, and they're the only two brothers that get lumped into one word over their life, and it's because there was one moment, one thing they did together. One of their younger sisters, Dinah, got raped by a man in a nearby town, and they went to that town, and they not only murdered that man, but they murdered every man in that town. Their, their wrath was profound. Their hands were bloody. They were violent. And Jacob is bringing this out. This is, a, I mean, this is a messed up family. So then he gets to the fourth son, and this is where we're going to park. Let's go to um, verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. Now you see this swirling metaphor, this prophetic language, and we're going to work through what he says over his fourth son, Judah. And what we'll see is that there is a lion theme over what he says to Judah from the beginning. The first thing that he's talking about is he says, your, your brothers will praise you. Now that is a play on words off of his name, Judah, which means praise the Lord. Now his name, hang with me here, we're going to dig into some of this history. His name is unique to Judah because if you go back to where Jacob's um, wives are having sons and they're giving them all of their names, you will notice that as they're having sons, they are competing, the wives are competing with each other for the attention, acceptance, and affection of their husband. And it becomes this swirling, conniving, uh, treacherous, competitive, jealous, envious, just whirlpool in their house. And every name of the sons, you go right down the list of all 12 sons, every single one of them is named in a way that is accentuating that jealousy and competition. So the first son, Reuben, his name means see a son. And his mom said, 
I hope, in other words, I hope that my husband will see that I've given him a son, and then she says, and then he will love me. They're building their identity and their self-worth on these sons that they're trying to provide for, for Jacob. Then the other sons mean that as well, like Levi, for example. Levi means attached. And uh, his mom, Leah, says, now my husband will be attached to me because I have given him a son. Every single name reflecting the swirling jealousy in this house, except for one moment, one of the sons, there seems to be this reprieve of all of the striving for acceptance. It's when the fourth son, Judah, is born. And his mom simply says, I praise the Lord. Randomly, son number four. It picks up again after. But randomly, son number four is just this moment of rest. This moment of rest in her acceptance and who she is. And she says, praise the Lord. So Israel, Jacob, says over his son, Judah, which means praise the Lord, your brother shall praise you. Then he says, your brothers will bow down to you. And as we'll see, what he's meaning is you, you will reign. You will be, there's king language. That's part of why he picked the lion. There will be, you will reign and you will rule. But he says specifically, Judah, you are a lion's cub. And meaning, it's not, I'm not speaking prophetically over, the, over your life, Judah. At this point, Judah is an old, Jacob is very, very old. Judah is probably a grandfather. It's not something that's going to happen later in his life. There's something embryonic in Judah that will eventually be full grown. There's, there's a kingliness that is to come out of Judah. And he says very specifically, he's going to be a victorious king. He is going to get his enemies by the throat. And then he gives this really interesting word picture right there in verse 9. Verse 9 is very significant. He says, you will bow down. You will go down. And that word in the Hebrew can mean many different things. It can mean bow down in grief. It can mean just bow down like into death. Or it can just mean like just going low. He says, you will bow down, but that bow down will be a crouch and your enemies who would dare rouse you up. Now, this word is, is very interesting because there's something unique that um, large cats do in, in, in this particular family and lions do when they're about ready to pounce and strike and gain victory, they get low. I have a picture of that. We have a picture of a, a lion here. Um, look at that right there. See that menacing? In fact, now that I look at myself, it looks like he's about to maul me, like the way this is right here. <laughs> Gonna step over here, all right. Um, look at this. I mean, look at just the coiled power if you are the object of this lion that's crouching, you don't want that lion to rise up. That means he's pouncing. That means he is going to tear you down. And that word for he's, he's gone low, but don't be fooled 
being brought low is just a crouch because he is a lion. And you don't dare, if you are his enemy, you don't dare want him to rise up. That word rise up is kum, is the Hebrew word kum. You don't dare want that, rouse that line up. You don't dare arise that line up. You don't want that lion to go from being low to coming out. That will not go well for you. That's not something you want. That is something unique about lions or something particular about lions. In other words, there is a, there is a king coming from Judah, a promised king, a promised victorious king. He's going to get his enemies by the throat, a promised victorious king. He's going to come up. He says, you're going to come up from your prey. In other words, I want you to picture a lion that has just finished eating its prey with still blood on its mane, walking away, it's finished with its prey. That is how this lion, this promised victorious king that will come through Judah is described. Now, pause for a second. Man, Reuben and Levi and Simeon basically just got eviscerated by their dad. But Judah comes along and he's like, oh, Judah, you're, there's going to be, there's, I see king, kingliness and I see, it's like a lion and you'll have victory and they're all going to bow down around you. Like, why Judah? Why just randomly the fourth son? Is it because he, I mean, those guys were messed up, but not Judah? No, in fact, maybe Judah might have been worse than those other three. Like, how could, how could he be worse than those other three? Did he murder like two towns? Like, how's that? What do you, what's worse than that? Well, it was Judah when his own brother, Joseph, who had done nothing to him, it wasn't revenge, came out to their, to their brothers to check on them in the field. And the brothers decided to kill him because they were so envious, including Judah. So they throw him in a pit. It is Judah that speaks up and say, look, we could kill him, but there's no money in that. Let's sell him instead. And so he sells, on Judah's word, they sell Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. They take Joseph down into Egypt. They all go lie to their father. One day, they, uh, they, will, they will go to Egypt looking for grain. But how is Judah worse than Reuben? Well, Judah's worse than Reuben. He didn't sleep with one of his father's wives. He slept with his son's wife. And and you say, well, how, why, or how would he do that? He was confused because she was disguised as a prostitute. So he thought she was a prostitute. That's how that happened. So what's, this is not a good guy. So why is Judah the one that's picked? Well, all we know, and this doesn't excuse his messy life, but there is something interesting about Judah. When they eventually are older and Joseph has risen to power in Egypt and they go to see Joseph and they take their youngest brother, Benjamin, and Jacob pleads not to take Benjamin. It is Judah that says, I will make sure on my life, Benjamin will return. And when he's standing before Joseph and Joseph wants to arrest Benjamin, the youngest brother, it's Judah that says, it gives a long speech. The text really slows down so you don't miss his speech. And Judah says, take me in his place. So while Judah's messed up, you see something has happened in his soul where he's willing to give his life for a brother in his place and trade places with him. 
This is not all that's said to Judah. Let's, let's look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Here's what he's saying. Not only will this be a promised victorious king, it says the scepter will never depart from Judah's house. So he will be this king that will come, will be a promised victorious eternal king who will rule forever. And it is not just a line, a dynasty, because of this line here in verse 10, where it says until the tribute comes for him or comes to him, or more literally, until he comes to whom it all belongs. In other words, there will be one who comes that all of this prophetic word and all of this belongs to him. Be watching, not just for a kingly line from Judah, but from a particular king, a promised, victorious, eternal king that will come from the line of Judah. And then it says, and he's not just going to be the king of Israel. He will be the king for all peoples. It is a promised victorious, eternal king over all other kings. Now, one last thing is said to Judah, and I want to dig into it here. Let's look at these last two verses, verse 11 and 12. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Now this is his final word to Judah. He's going to move on to the next son after this. And you can see this very poetic language. And this last verse has a, three, a theme. He's saying three different things, all surrounding the theme of wine. His first thing he says is a, he will tie a donkey's colt, a foal, to a vine. Vine is always significant language all through the Old Testament. It represents chiefly in the Old Testament, it represents Israel itself. But here it's God's vine, his vineyard. But specifically, I want you to picture in your mind this word picture. I want you to imagine someone who's got a donkey's colt, unruly. He'll take this little donkey and he's looking for a post to tie it to, which will probably pull against it or whatever. Can you imagine he's looking around, can't find a post or maybe he sees a post, but instead he decides to tie it to a vine, grapevine, and not any vine, a choice vine. A vine that had been passed down from generations. A vine that produced incredible grapes. The type of grapes that produced award-winning wine. I mean, you can't, you can't estimate how valuable this vine is. What's going to happen if he takes this unruly baby donkey and ties it to that vine? It's going to pull at the vine. It's going to pull down the vine. It's going to trample the vine. It's going to eat the vine. So what's the picture here? The idea here is speaking to his prosperity in the sense that this particular king will have so much wealth, will have so many vines, so many choice vines, 
that when he walks up, he's got so many, he can just, he can turn a vine into a, a harness post. He can just pull, um, tie the donkey up to that vine. It doesn't matter. He has so many vines. It's similar to how the scripture describes Solomon. It says he was so wealthy. He had lifted up the economy so much that King Solomon made silver like stone in Jerusalem. It was like pebbles on the ground. Like if you, you wouldn't stop and pick up a piece of silver because there was so much of it. In the same way, this king will be so prosperous that he'll, he'll tie a donkey's foal to a vine. And it's not a big deal because he's got acres and acres and acres, endless choice vines. You follow me here? Okay. Then he picks up wine in a second thing. It speaks to his prosperity. Then it picks up the uh, image of wine for a second thing. He says his garments, his clothes, his vestments will be washed in wine. They will, be, they will have the blood of grapes on them. You, you think of wine on clothes and blood on clothes. It looks very similar. They both stain badly. But he will, his clothes will be washed with blood. This is speaking to battle. He will look like he's just come from battle. Now, here's the interesting thing. It doesn't specify whose blood is it. Is he retreating from battle covered in his own blood? Or is he coming back from battle with the other guy's blood? Victorious. Whose blood is drenched his clothing? We don't know whose blood, but what we do know from this text is he's, a vic he's the victor. He's going to grab his enemies by the neck, right? So one way or another, he is victorious, but his garments have blood on it. Now here's the last one, very poetic. He said his eyes are rich, like dark, like wine, and his teeth are white, like milk. Now it's a strange description, but it's speaking about his appearance and it's speaking to his beauty. It's not just saying, well, he's got nice eyes and good teeth. The rest of him is so-so, but his eyes and teeth are nice. No, this is, po this is poetry. And it's using, think of the, the theme is wine. So it's, picture, it's picking the color spectrum in their mind. The dark richness. I mean, think of a really dark, rich red wine is almost black, but it's deep red. And the other extreme is bright white. And he's saying his beauty is so complete, it like covers the spectrum from deep red to bright white. He's speaking of his beauty, speaking of his prosperity, speaking of his victory, speaking of his beauty. Okay. Who is this promised, victorious, eternal king of kings that will come from the line of Judah. Who is this lion? If you've been at City Rev for a minute and a half, then you will expect me to say it's Jesus. But how could it be Jesus? He was not praised by his brothers. He was rejected. They, they didn't bow down to him. Actually, Gentiles 
mockingly bowed down to him. They put a, a crown of thorns. They put a, a robe on his back in mockery and in between spitting on him and beating him with rods and pulling out his beard. They pretended to mock him and said, this is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jewish people. This is the king from the tribe of Judah. They mocked him. I mean, how could it be Jesus? I mean, how could it be Jesus? He, he was impoverished here on earth. He wasn't wealthy. He wasn't beautiful. They, they beat him beyond recognition. He was barely recognized. His grisly, broken body on the cross barely recognized as human. He wasn't the epitome of beauty as a human. They, they didn't bow down to him. They rejected him. They didn't praise him. I mean, how could it possibly be Jesus? But look again at, at, at verse 9. It's so important because there's something that lions do. That when they get low, you better hope they don't rise up. When they get down low, it's not in defeat. It's a crouch. When they bow down, it may look like they're bowed into death but they're about ready to spring and take out their enemies. How could it be Jesus? Because the true lion of Judah, when he was brought down low, he rose up, sprung into action, and destroyed his enemies. That's how. It's because he was beaten, bloodied, and, 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 and absolutely torn, unrecognizable, and yet that is the, the path through which he was raised back up to be the most glorious being of all time. He was rejected taking all of our sin on himself, but then God lifted him up, his name higher than any other name, the name of Jesus, so that every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's because Jesus is the lion that when he was brought down low, he sprung back out and destroyed his enemies. Isn't that good news, church? That's who the lion, the lion of Judah is. See, here's who Jesus is. Jesus is the promised king. How do we know that it's Jesus in particular that, that is that promised king? It's because Jesus did what the later Old Testament promised. They, the later Old Testament said, your king will come to you riding on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus one day came riding in to Israel, the vine, riding on a donkey's colt. But it was not this great pomp and circumstance, a picture of his prosperity. It was a picture of his humility. He borrowed the colt because he didn't need earthly wealth. He owned everything in the universe. He is the promised king. He's not just the promised king. He's the promised victorious king. What did Jesus have victory over? He had victory over death and has victory over sin. Listen to how Jesus is described at the other end of the Bible in Revelation 19. It says this, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. That's many, many crowns. Uh, many diadems, and his name, uh, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now look, he is clothed in a robe dipped in what? Blood. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name which he, um, and the, the name he is called is the word of God. He is the crowned conqueror, his clothes dipped in blood, and ironically, it is his blood. 
because it's through his blood that he went down into death and rose back out of death to life, conquering death itself. But he didn't just conquer death. He is the victorious king over sin. Listen to how it's described in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. When uh, there, there, It says this, I said to him, this is John asking an angel, uh, I said to him, surely you know, and he said to me, these coming out, that's the saints, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Look, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How do you wash something in blood and turn it white? Only if it's the blood of the lamb. It's by his blood that his, not just his garments are washed in, but his, he washes our garments in blood, making them white as snow. He is the victorious king, blood-stained robes, victorious over death and over, and over sin itself. He is the promised victorious king, but he's the promised victorious eternal king. See, what was embryonic in Judah, he was a lion's cub, is full-grown in Jesus Whereas Judah offered to give his life, one life for his brother's life, one life for one life. If you're Jesus, if it's God in the flesh, an eternal being giving up his life, then it's not just for one person. Jesus, God in the flesh, can give his life, sacrificing his life for many. And not only give many life, give many eternal life. Because by his blood, we have eternal life. He is the promised, victorious, eternal king. And he's the promised, victorious, eternal king of kings. Once more from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Look at what it says. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Every tongue and tribe and nation. He's not just the king of Christians. He's not just the promised king of Israel. He is the king over all the universe. Now listen, church. Jesus is the promised, victorious, eternal King of kings. And he knows your name. He sees you. And he's called you to himself. He's saying, I want you to follow me. If that is who is calling you, you can't follow a king like that. A king so significant that God needed thousands of years to prepare for him. And then we would take thousands of years to celebrate him. Why? Because we'll spend eternally, eternity, Hailing him, the eternal, beautiful, glorious king. A king like that, if he calls you, you can't halfway follow a king like that. It's all or nothing.
You can't sprinkle into your life a little bit of Jesus. You can't have the resume of your life of all the significant things about you and somewhere down the line is that you're a follower of Jesus. To be a mathetes, a follower of Jesus, is an all or nothing situation because of who he is. The ultimate king that all creation is waiting and yearning for. That's who Jesus is. And so if we dare to follow after him, if we dare to answer the call of the lion, if we dare to take on his name Christian, if we dare to call ourselves a follower of Jesus, it is an all or nothing situation where it becomes the most significant, important part of who we are. It becomes our identity and everything else pales in comparison to that. That's what it means to follow Jesus. So if you're here and you don't know if that's how you're following Jesus, you need to make that decision today because it's not a part, you don't partially follow a king like that. It's everything or nothing. That's what Jesus said. But if you're not sure, I want to encourage you to take that step and answer the call of the lion. That's what that means for us personally. But church, what does that mean for us together? Here's the word that Jesus said about church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell itself will not stand against it, period. So you know what that means? We've seen many miracles and many adventures for 21 years, but that means Jesus is just getting started with our church. And that's not because of anything unique about us, it's unique about who he is. And we're following after this ultimate king who's a lion. Can you dare believe what he might do? Can you dare have mustard seed faith to believe that mountains can be moved? Can you dare imagine what would happen if we spend the rest of our lives together making Jesus revealed, preparing for a move of Jesus through our city? Can you dare believe that we might in our generation see what other generations have seen, a sweeping move of King Jesus so powerfully that an entire city comes to their knees, that we might be a part of the church of South Florida rising up, revealing Jesus so that our cities can be revolutionized. Can you imagine, do you dare dream what Miami could look like if it's brought to its knees before Jesus, or what Fort Lauderdale could look like if it's brought to its knees before Jesus, or the whole region, what it could look like if it's brought to its knees before Jesus, because the churches of South Florida rose up and say, we are following after this ultimate king, and it is our joy every day to give ourselves to reveal this Jesus to you and the Holy Spirit does a sweeping move. Can you imagine what could happen? Can you imagine what we could pass to our children? Can you dare believe that that is the kind of king that we follow? And he said he's going to build his church. What might he do? What might he do over the next 21 years? May we have the faith to believe it and the expectancy and hope to watch for it. And may we have the ferocity to follow after him, all or nothing. Some of you are here 
And you need to today make a decision to become a mathetase of Jesus, an all-or-nothing follower of Jesus. And here's how you can indicate that today. In just a moment, we're going to end our service by taking communion. And it is the symbol of wine and bread, the marker of this king that was to come. And Jesus took the, the cup and said, my blood is poured out. It is a new covenant. I'm pouring out my blood for you. And he took bread and he broke it and said, this bread is a symbol of my body broken for you. It is because this king had greater love than we could ever imagine. He gave his life for us and we celebrate that. And he went down into death, but he rose again on the third day. If you are not ready to say, I am an all or nothing follower of Jesus, hold off on taking communion because that's what we're doing. We're proclaiming Jesus. But if you want to take that step today, then you can take that step for the first time by taking communion. Let that be your, your step before Jesus of saying, I'm following after you. And here's what that means. It means you're very much like a small girl that Jesus encountered. She had died. And her parents brought Jesus into her room. And he brought the parents in. And he spoke a word over this girl to raise her back to life. And the words that he spoke in Aramaic, which is similar to the Hebrew, Aramaic was so profound that even though the New Testament's written in Greek, they preserved the Aramaic so we could hear his words. And you know a word he said when he spoke to her and told her to rise? Kum. He said, Talitha, kumi, rise. Because as Jesus rises, rises up, he takes us with him. Maybe today is the day where your life rises up out of the brokenness it is by trying to run your own life. Rise up with Jesus and find salvation today. Let me pray, and then we're going to take communion together. Lord Jesus, we offer ourselves to you, and we say, here we are, send us. We as a church are part of the South Florida church, and we say, Jesus, we, we know that following you and being your mathetase is an all-or-nothing situation. And Jesus, as we think about who you are, you are the promised, victorious, eternal King of kings. And it is our joy to give our lives to making you known. Thank you now, Jesus, as we, as we prepare to take communion. Thank you for your shed blood that you gave for us. Thank you for your broken body that was broken for us. Thank you for that sacrifice. It is by that work we are saved, not our own works. And we celebrate that today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need um, communion elements, we have some ushers that are going to walk down uh, the aisle. You can just lift your hand up and ask for some of the communion elements. Um, you can go ahead and take those elements. Take the cup. We're going to first peel off the top layer. Take the bread. And we're going to, you can take the bread. And as you take it, remember that he did this. His body was broken. He did this for you. Let's take the bread together. 
Now you can open up that foil wrapper, the juices. As we take this, remember that his blood is a symbol of his blood shed for you. Let's take this together. Jesus, we thank you that we will spend eternity with you. It's often described as a feast. We'll spend this eternity with you, and we praise you for that, by the work that you did on the cross. For all those who are taking this for the first time as their statement of following you, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill their hearts, fill their, their lives as they're following after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we're going to close with a song today. Um, this is a, a song that's new for us. You can go ahead and take. You can go ahead and stand. This song is new for us. And as you hear this, it's about our great lion that we follow. As you hear this, you can either hear these words or you can sing along. But let's end reflecting on our King. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.